Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, all you wonderful, wonderful F1 fans. It is race weekend once again. We are almost done with the 2023 season. We only have two more races left. But more importantly than that, if you're hearing my voice, that can only mean two things. One, my name is Kelsey, and two, you are listening to the newest edition of F101. And as always, we're going to start off this wonderful, wonderful episode with the hot topics. This is everything that you need to know in the world of F1. It has the first topic we're going to hit has a lot to do with the F1 price gouging and the Las Vegas Grand Prix as it stands right now. We are the weekend of the Vegas Grand Prix, obviously. It's what we're talking about this weekend. And the ticket prices that were previously aired, we're talking thousands of dollars for general admission tickets. Well, less than a week out, the F1, you know, um, administration and the people who, you know, do what they do, all of a sudden the ticket prices started going down and not by like a little bit to try to fill those last minute seats. We're talking 80% ticket price drop. So tickets that were going for tens of thousands of dollars, packages that were hundreds of thousands of dollars, now a fraction of what they were before. Average grandstand prices now are a little bit more realistic. You're now looking at maybe $1,000 instead of $2,500 to $5,000 per ticket. At the same token, hotel prices have dropped substantially, especially the, a lot of the hotels that were not necessarily on the strip, that are not necessarily a part of the race itself but still wanted to capitalize on the people coming into town. Perfect example, hotel prices that were looking at $1,700 a night, keeping in mind, you had to buy, a, uh, you had to get your hotel room for the entire three days. There was no coming in just for a Friday and leaving on Saturday. You had to come in for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, which didn't make a whole lot of sense just because the race was Saturday and not Sunday. Anyways, when you're looking at $1,700 per night, guaranteed three nights no matter what all of a sudden ticket prices are down to the regular weekend prices in vegas anywhere between 111 and 222 dollars per night they took away the option that or they took away the stipulation that you had to be there for all three days i think this was the best thing that could have happened to formula one especially going into how popular it is into the future for 24 25 and 26 I see this sport becoming more and more popular as the years go on, just as a new generation finds motorsports. But this set a very important precedent. It was a reality check for any other city that might be interested in getting into F1 and that can figure that they can charge whatever they want for however long they want for the time of the event is there. Massive wake-up check. Massive, massive wake-up check for all cities, for all events. This showed that you can't just price gouge people and expect them to pay because they think, oh, you have to be here no matter what. It's it's not a Taylor Swift concert. I know, you know, Taylor Swift is popular, so is Formula One, but you can't justify 1700 2500 you know, thousands of dollars worth for tickets when most people can't afford it. You're pricing out the people who want to see it the most. You're pricing out the actual fans who want to go. So I think this was a fantastic revelation over the weekend. Um, and hopefully, hopefully future 
cities, future races and future events will catch on and be like, hey, we need to actually be able to price this out properly so people can actually come and see our race. Moving along, next hot topic. Uh, I think this is a fantastic thing that's going to happen. This also puts F1 in a bit of a pickle and a you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't kind of situation. Cadillac has officially signed on to be a works project team for the 2028 season. Now, Cadillac is associated with the Andretti group who has gotten the approval from the FIA to become the 11th team in Formula One as of 2026. The only thing that is waiting for the official approval and stamp is the other 10 teams in Formula One have to approve this no matter what. So FIA has said yes, F1 has yet to say this. With Cadillac making this major statement two days before the Vegas Grand Prix, I think this was the best move that Cadillac could absolutely have done. It was fantastic media planning by everybody involved. And this really puts F1 teams in a, if you say no, everybody thinks you're greedy. Everybody knows you're greedy. And if you say yes, you don't want to, but you have to. Now, with this announcement, some people may be wondering, well, what's the difference between Cadillac being associated with Andretti and Cadillac saying that they're going to be a works project team for 2028? What this means is that when 2028 hits, if F1 says yes, is that Cadillac will be a standalone projects team, which means they are building the engine. They are not just associated with one team as a sponsor, that they're putting in more effort, time, money and commitment to formula one in general which also means that let's say cadillac makes a much better and more reliable engine that's say mercedes at that point any team that has a mercedes engine that their contract is up with the projects team can go to cadillac and be like hey i need your we want to pay for your engine we will put your engine in our car this gives cadillac that ability to do that this gives Formula One teams more choice for engine suppliers and a little bit more technological, uh, more of a technological race when it comes towards the teams. I think this is nothing but a good idea. The innovation of the sport is what will keep the sport at the tip top level that we know it should be and that we know that it can be. Now, whether the F1 teams will actually agree to this or not is a totally, totally separate you know, conversation. I really hope they do. It's only a smart decision from how I see it. They keep moving the goalposts. They keep moving the bar of what Andretti and Cadillac need to do to become a Formula One team. And they just keep meeting the expectations. You want to up the price to enter. We've got the money. We'll pay it. You have to do A, B, and C. They will do A, B, and C. No matter what Formula One tries to throw at Andretti, they are just more than willing and more than capable, more importantly, to meet all of the new criteria and standards that they keep getting thrown at them. I want to say before the beginning of the 2024 season that Andretti will be announced as the next Formula One team because at this point, it's why you can't outprice them. You can't embarrass them so they don't come into Formula One. Just have your group meeting. Just accept the fact that Andretti is going to come in because if you don't, you have a massive problem on your hands that a lot of the work or a lot of the the fan base, you're going to lose it. And then the conversation comes up, teams like Williams and teams like Haas, under your specific scrutiny of what Andretti has to do, Williams wouldn't be around, Haas wouldn't be around, McLaren probably wouldn't be around, and Alfretari would definitely be on the, the teeter-totter of being able to be accepted. So just accept them. Just take them into the Formula One fold. Let them pay what you tell them to pay. 
and just move on with it and let the fans get even more excited for the upcoming seasons. And the last topic we're going to cover today, it has to do a little bit more with uh, movies and media and a little bit with Lewis Hamilton, but we're going to get into it. All of you fans, including myself, may have noticed at the beginning of the season that there was an announcement that a new, essentially a new F1 movie was in production and Lewis Hamilton was one of the co-producers and one of the guys to make sure that all of the specific details was actually accurate to Formula One racing. Uh, it had Brad Pitt in it and it had a couple of more, um, not more, they had some other uh, big stars in it. Because of the writer's strike that had happened, and then a very brief actor strike, some sponsorships had changed with the production team and some of the sponsors that had changed for the actual you know, F1 crews. Some sponsors get dropped on, new ones get picked up. It's a very normal part of uh, moto racing. But enough has changed that the entire season, minus the last three races worth of filming, absolutely now 100% has to be scrapped. And now they have to go back and start all over again filming the exact same scenes, just with different sponsors for the 2024 season. So those of us, myself included, who are very much looking forward to this movie, uh, we're going to end up having to wait at least another year for it to come out. I'd still expect it to be a very high quality movie. Lewis Hamilton is not one to let small details get past him, especially when it comes to something that he loves as much as Formula One racing. Well, folks, that has that's it. For our, uh, for our hot topics for this week, uh, let's get into it now. We're going to get into the full practice. We're going to add a little bit of a, a different segment where we don't normally talk about full practice when it comes to a Grand Prix weekend unless something drastic and major happens. And well, if you've seen any coverage whatsoever of the Las Vegas Grand Prix, some pretty dramatic and drastic things had happened. So let's get right into it. Full practice one, full practice two and three. For those of us in North America, this was a very, very early or late race and practices, depending on how you want to look at it. Vegas time, it was, you know, like 11 o'clock midnight. Sometimes it got into one, two in the morning in Vegas, which made it even earlier for us out here in the West. Definitely worth watching, though. There was some historical things that have happened, but not very often. And by historical, I mean... When it comes to motorsport and you are definitely on a street track, there are some things that you are in control of and there are definitely some things that you are not in control of. Some of the things that you are definitely in control of are is the, the track itself. Vegas had done up or dug up the entire strip. They repaved everything, which means you do change the composition of the, the street a little bit. You got to move manhole covers. You have to redo them. You got to make sure they're in the proper position. And more importantly, when it comes, especially with Grand Prix racing, when it comes to Formula One racing, is you have to make sure the manhole covers are not just down and into the ground, but essentially some places weld them down. Some places use a very industrial, essentially glue that you mix with the cement or asphalt that you use to keep them down. And they never come up like they just leave them down specifically for when F1 comes around year after year. It kind of all depends on what that city or that event wants to do. Vegas chose the, we're going to put them down, we're going to seal them, and then we're going to put the new tarmac down, which works. Traditionally, that works no matter where you are, especially in Monaco, any kind of um, temporary street circuit where you've got thousands of cars every single day driving this track in the non-testing times, which we'll get into in a minute. But there are chances that that can fail. F1 cars have such downforce that it's 
there's always that rumor and that fun fact that if a, an F1 car was driving in a tunnel and it had the momentum and the proper walls, it could drive on the roof just because of the downforce that it generates. Now, I've never seen this actually happen, but I'm not exactly about to test this kind of math. I do believe the experts when they say that these cars can do what they say they can. But what also means that when you're driving on a street course, the suction is so that if you don't have everything properly sealed, you're going to rip it right out of the ground. And that is what happened in full practice one in Las Vegas. And when I say it was the historical thing that in the history of F1, this is not a super common thing to happen, but it has happened in the past. If you have watched a lot of Formula One, if you just keep track of, of motor racing in general, it's not really that big of a deal anymore. Everybody knows it can happen and you take as much precaution to prevent it as you possibly can. But with things being things and the way life runs, sometimes it doesn't work out. So people, I think in my opinion, just absolutely overblew the circumstance of what happened. If you don't watch enough moto racing in general, whether it be MotoGP, NASCAR, Indy, Formula One, anything like that, if you don't watch enough of it, you don't understand. And, and I'm sorry if that offends some people, but if you don't know, you don't know. And in this case, a lot of people just didn't know and they didn't understand. Alpine car goes over a manhole cover. And these are not massive manhole covers. It didn't look that big. It was probably a little bit bigger than a Frisbee from what it looked like. Uh, Alpine car goes over this manhole cover. It dislodges it just enough that right behind the Alpine comes Carlos Seitz and he just nails it. He doesn't see it. Therefore, he doesn't have an opportunity to get out of the way. The marshals didn't know it just because it happened so fast. Absolutely demolishes and fucks up uh, his car like so bad, like so, so incredibly bad. Carlos cites no chance whatsoever to miss it. Okay, so that happens. So what do you do? You have to put the, the manhole cover back in. Okay, everybody's back in the pit lanes. It's a red flag. They're checking out Carlos Sainz's car. They have to do repairs, obviously, because it's full practice and you want him to be able to race this weekend. But what had happened in the aftermath of that is not only did they have to repair that manhole cover, but the stewards and the FIA and the you know organizers and all that deemed it necessary. And I think it was a prudent call to recheck every single manhole cover that is on this 6.2 kilometer track. That takes a minute or two. As in, that takes five hours to do because you actually have to fix the manhole cover that came up in the first place. But what had happened and what the announcement was after that is because of how long it takes them to repair it, and this is where the time of thousands of cars going over the road will come back into that, when you have a temporary street circuit, you have to open the road to normal traffic at a very certain time. Now, that just doesn't mean that they're done racing. That means that the track, the stands, the pit lane, everybody has to be gone by a certain time. In Las Vegas, it is 4 a.m. You have to be totally cleared out so the roads can be open for regular traffic for so many hours, and then you close it again for the event, for practice, all that kind of fun stuff, and then the fans can come back. Well, obviously, they didn't communicate this very well because they ended up having to police escort fans off the property because nobody understood or it wasn't explained to them very well one how long the repairs were going to take and two why they actually had to leave the property and go back to their hotels or go back to their houses or their airbnbs or wherever they may be staying there was absolutely like 
thousands of just absolutely pissed fans contacting Formula One, the organizers demanding their money back, demanding why they had to leave. And it's just a lot of accusations being thrown around that they were just taking people's money. They weren't actually going to see anything. And watching this happen live, F1 TV just kind of cut out after a certain amount of time just because they knew it was going to take so long. And then that way, you know, there was no point in broadcasting. So anybody who was watching didn't really understand what else was, or didn't fully understand what else was going on. Add on top of that, and I'm going to a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a rant here. So, you know, just indulge me for a second. When you get half information, a lot of people like to run with that half information. Now, unfortunately, when it comes to the Vegas Grand Prix, there's so many people there that you're bound and determined to find some people who will report any kind of news, whether it's full, half, fake, or true. And this is definitely what had happened with the Vegas Grand Prix, especially, especially on the major social media platforms, especially on TikTok and Instagram. There were feeds going out where something happened during, and they use the term, the race. People aren't allowed to watch the race. People paid to see the race and they can't see the race that people were escorting people and handcuffing people and, you know, being super rough and, you know, incidents happen here and there and around the place. I'm like, watching these TikToks and watching these Instagram posts and actually knowing what happens just makes me absolutely infuriating. And I think this is where the FIA and F1 could have done a much better job to make a social media statement a lot sooner than they did. They took a couple hours before they actually put a statement out saying why people were escorted, how long and the reason why that there weren't any incidents and that people, if they have questions, comments, concerns, like they put some uh, emails up to let contact the organizers and they made a very specific effort to quash any kind of false reporting. And they made a very specific, re uh, very specific reference, the fact that it was just, and for those sports fans, just like me, you're going to know this reference that it was practice, not the race, but it was practice that they were going to be missing the rest of, but that they were going to extend full practice to not the race, but full practice two by an extra half hour. So you're going to get a 90 minute practice for practice two. Okay. That seems all well and fine, except for the fact that when full practice two came along again, they didn't tell anybody that they closed it off to fans because it would have taken them too long to get everybody off the premises before the roads opened. Again, here come all the social media accounts going. They're jipping people. They're taking their money. They're missing the race. Again, they're using the term the race where the proper pundits and the reporters and people who actually follow F1 ends up correcting more people than actually reporting on what happened going, you know, you're just missing the practice. To get all that sorted out, F1 comes along going, okay, anybody who missed full practice one and full practice two because it took too long in the reporting or not the reporting, the repairs and all that kind of stuff. They ended up re reimbursing the majority of the food and beverage vouchers. And they also extended essentially the purchasing time and days for some of the passes. So some of them, you have food and beverage packages that extend only from certain times of certain days. They refunded some of it. They extended most of those times. So you could still go in, let's say race day, and you could have a credit on your pass where you can get more food and drinks kind of to make up for the inconvenience. 
I think the FIA and the F1 did a fantastic job trying to mitigate the, some people are calling it a black eye. It's just a racing incident. In my opinion, things fail, but if you don't understand, it gets blown out of proportion. F1 did a good job in explaining it. I just think they could have taken a little less time to explain it and calmed nerves and minds and just made people, you know, a little bit more conscious of what actually happens in this kind of event that they're not getting ripped off. They're still going to see the practices. They're still going to see the events. It's still going to be an amazing weekend. Just, you know, calm down a little bit. So once all the media hoopla and all these angry YouTubers and Twitch streamers and TikTokers and all that kind of stuff kept getting their information wrong. And once they finally calmed down, it came out. You finally saw the damage that was done to Carlos Seitz's car. They had to replace the chassis, the engine, the energy store, the uh, interior power unit. Like they just had to replace like over half the car. Normally, when you replace so many parts, you're only allowed so many parts to replace. After that, you start getting penalties. Five seconds, 10 seconds, and then all of a sudden, the more bigger pieces you have to replace, the more you start dropping grid spots. One spot, two spot, three spot, all that kind of fun stuff. Carlos Seitz ended up getting a 10-place grid penalty for all the pieces that he had to replace on his car. I don't agree with that. A lot of people don't agree with that. Ferrari definitely did not agree with this. Mainly for the fact that, okay, yes, he had to replace all these parts. And yes, it was above his allocation for the year. But it was mitigating circumstances. It wasn't his fault that he had to repair all this stuff. There was a failure on track that caused all this damage. If he could have avoided it, you know he definitely would have. But he couldn't. Therefore, he didn't. Therefore, he has all this damage. And F1, to their credit for sticking to their guns, but I think this was the wrong time to stick to their guns in the rule book. They essentially just pointed to the rule book going, it's mitigating circumstances. You damaged your car. You still have to get the grip penalties for replacing the parts. I think if there is an opportunity and a time for the FIA to go, you know what? We're going to go into a little bit of a gray area. It wasn't your fault. It was a malfunction on the track. We're going to you know, give you a pass this time. I don't think any other team would have complained at this point. They would have been like, okay, that's totally understandable. And not give them the grid penalties. But as it is, they end up, end up nailing him with a 10-spot penalty. Massively unfair. Um, I hope they look after this rule for the 2024 season and on, being if there is a track failure out of the control of the drivers and the teams themselves, any replaced parts still... It still comes out of their allocation, but they don't get dinged with a penalty if it goes over just because it's not their fault. If they could have avoided it, they would have. But the hardcore fans are going to go, hey, it is what it is. It's in the rule book. You got to follow the rules. I hope it changes. But hey, Ferrari has come back from worse decisions from the FIA than this. It's not in their best interest uh, to be replaced all these parts. Granted, there is only one race left. So if you could say there was an opportune time for this to happen at the end of the season kind of is the best scenario you can get. Maybe the only better scenario would be the very last race of the season where, I mean, you get parts replaced and it, it doesn't really matter, but uh, yeah, pretty shitty, shitty situation for Ferrari kind of egg on the face of the FIA and F1, but Hey, that's racing for you. So the dust has settled. The crowds have calmed down. 
cars are repaired. It's time to actually go racing. It is qualifying Saturday morning. And we're talking like midnight, 1230 Saturday morning. It was early, but absolutely 100% well worth it. Keeping in mind that no one has ever driven this track before. They have done simulations on this track just because they have to be provided with some kind of training. They don't go in totally blank besides their full practice laps. A lot of speculation on how well this track was built because the last time there was an impromptu, not impromptu, but a very short research time track was put in. It was Miami in the first year. That was in 2022. Uh, It was okay. It wasn't exactly wonderful. Apparently, Vegas had looked at what Miami had did wrong and corrected all of this. The drivers love this track. This track, I was skeptical about, mainly just because the shape of it. It didn't look like that intense or that technical of a track. But to see these guys race on this track, I was absolutely and happily proven wrong. It is a fast track. It is a very exciting track. It is a track that... You can get caught up in a little bit of traffic, but more often than not, you're going to be able to pass your way through it or you're going to be able to, you know, mitigate being caught behind somebody just because it's so wide, it's so open, and it's so fast. The drivers, it took them three days to get accustomed to it. They took three days to get the track really dialed in. There was some extra oil just because it's brand new asphalt, but because it's a temporary track, and you've got thousands of cars driving on it in between races and practices, I think that really helped the track come into its own. A lot of the locals and tourists and just regular vehicles driving on it every day, all day long, really kind of honed it in a lot sooner than it normally would be if it was just racing on the asphalt. It was fantastic. Great speed, great cornering. Uh, Some corners were so, so tight. They're missing these walls by centimeters on the corner, totally in control, but that's how tight and technical this course ended up being. The bottom five, uh, there were some question marks on why they were as low as they were, but it wasn't really surprising just for the fact that no one had really driven this car. So we're going to get to the bottom five and then we're going to go it from, we'll go into it from that. 16th was Lando Norris, 17th was Ocon, 18th was Joe Guan Yu, 19th was Piastri, and 20th was Yuki Tsunoda. The massive, massive issue, or not issue, the surprise for Q1 was Norris and Piastri, 16th and 19th. McLaren has a really, really, really fast car on the straightaways. Now, Vegas had a lot of straightaways, a lot of really good passing but the corners that you got into were a lot more technical and tighter than a lot of these drivers realized, which really hurt the momentum of the McLaren. But once you get past those corners and you get around them and you hit the straight stretches, that's where they did a lot of their, their catching up. Lando Norris missed out on Q2 by like two one thousandths of a second. Like he was just right there. But because the track is so new to everybody, everyone's driving a little more cautious than probably they normally would on a track that they have a lot of experience with or a track they have experience with, with a few minor tweaks here and there, brand new track. You always want to make sure that you want to be as safe as possible. Not only that, you don't want to trash your car and take yourself out of the potential point standings in the race on, you know, in this case, Saturday night or generally on the weekend because constructors points are so close. These drivers want to push it to the limit because that's what they do best. But at the same time, new track, you have to do it intelligently so you don't take yourself out for the entire weekend. 
surprising notification during Q1. It had absolutely nothing to do with Q1. It had something to do with full practice three, which a lot of people honestly were too jet lagged or too tired to remember. Lance Stroll was hit with a five place grid penalty. That doesn't normally happen penalties period in full practice. Generally nothing happens in practice enough for people to get penalties for the actual race. That notwithstanding, Lance Stroll five place grid penalty for essentially ignoring yellow flags. Because the drivers are still getting used to the, the track and because the tarmac is so new, or the asphalt, sorry, is so new, it's slick. You, you make a lot of mistakes. Whether you're the seven-time champion, you're either a brand new rookie or in between, you're going to make mistakes and you learn from those mistakes. Every time you spin out, every time you go into the runoff area, it's a yellow flag. Rules still apply. When a yellow flag comes out, you slow down, you can't pass, and you have to drive safely until it's a green flag again. Well, Lance Stroll decided to ignore that and gets nailed with a five-point penalty, like I've said before, in practice. Moving on to Q2. Q2, again, two huge surprises on who's out in Q2, but for a totally different reason. The cars that these guys have, they're tuned in. They're working, they're working very, very well. Upgrades are all established. They've got them tuned in. They're going well. The only thing that these guys now have to learn, and it's essentially on the fly, is that even the fastest lap is still a minute 36. So the normal time of, okay, we're going to wait till the last four minutes, we're going to do a warm-up lap, and then we're going to get out there and do our hot lap. You got to change your thinking about that. With a minute 38, you need a lot more time to do a warm-up lap. Some guys are doing two warm-up laps to get the tires into the area that they want. It's 11 degrees, 12 degrees on Saturday morning. So it's cooler for them. It's not cold, but it's cooler for them and the general temperature they're used to driving in. So you need to adapt. Some guys adapted a little bit better than others. Shaco Perez out in Q2 again. The last couple minutes of qualifying, he's in pit lane. He's sitting in the pits. I think this was one of those circumstances where they just they totally missed the mark on time and track management. He should have been out just keeping those tires warm. You go around, you get one lap warm up done. You've got enough time to do your hot lap to make it into Q3. He didn't do that this time. Same thing that goes with Lewis Hamilton, in my opinion. He wasn't in the pit lane, but his warm up laps were almost like two and a half minutes long. Like you gotta, you gotta pick up the pace. The track is two, 6.2 kilometers long. It's the second longest track on the calendar this year and i think in recent memory of formula one so you got to adjust your time maybe you push those tires a little bit more than you want to in your warm-up lap maybe you don't take as many warm-up laps and you have to do a few more hot laps maybe it's a little bit more uncomfortable some drivers are better adapting to this than others these two guys massive shock that they're out in q2 hamilton remarked that he's pushing the car as best as he can which makes me think that maybe the Mercedes wasn't as fast or as set up as they thought it would be for Vegas, or maybe it was just the track temperature and just the temperature in general in Vegas that was kind of throwing these guys off a little bit. The five drivers eliminated from Q2 was 11th was Hamilton, 12th was Perez, 13th was Hulkenberg, Stroll was in 14th, and Daniel Ricciardo in 15th. Daniel Rick didn't have a horrible qualifying. He also didn't have an amazing qualifying. The Alfa Atari compared to everybody else, it is coming into its own. It's just it's not exactly the best track for it. The, the, the straight stretches 
really benefited the Alfretari, but when it came to the cornering, just because it was so tight and so technical, it really slows the card down. He did his best. I mean, it's Danny Rick. You know he does what he does. It's just a little bit, hopefully, it'll just be a little bit better on race day. Q3, the best of the weekend, the top 10. In Q1 and Q2, have you noticed there was any names that I didn't mention that are normally out at Q1, and if they're lucky, they make it into Q2? Not both of them, but one of them. That's If you're thinking about it, I'll give you a hint. Starts with a W, ends with an Williams. That's right, Williams, both drivers, Albon and Logan Sargent, top 10. It was amazing to watch these guys just kick ass and take the opportunities that were given to them. I know I've shit on Logan Sargent a few times this season going, maybe he's not the best. He's definitely not the best rookie that's out there this year. I mean, better than, you know, that one guy that used to drive for Alfa Tire that only lasted for like nine races. What was his name again? But he has been struggling this year. He's trying to get out of his head. He's trying to learn the tracks. He's also competing with guys that have been around the same track for, you know, if you've been racing Formula One for seven years, you've essentially done most of the tracks seven times in a row. And he's playing a lot of catch up as rookies do. It's part of the learning experience. And no matter what sport or wherever you are, being a rookie, being new at something has a massive learning curve. Sometimes the curve is better for others, but most of the time you just kind of struggle to make your way through and hopefully you don't look or feel too dumb by the end of it. Except for now, Vegas. No one's ever driven this before, except for simulators. And even at that, a simulator can only tell you so many things, which means that Lewis Hamilton. Max Verstappen, Alex Albon, and Logan Sargent are all even. They're on the same playing field. Yeah, some cars are better than others. Some cars have more money, more upgrades to them, and just all around faster. But driving experience here, everybody's equal. Everybody is the same. So now we can really see what Logan Sargent's made of. He makes it to the top 10. He doesn't necessarily blow everybody away. He's definitely not top three, but that's more of the car than it is him. You see the level and the learning curve that Logan Sargent has gone through. Anybody else, I think, would have crumbled a little bit more. Oscar Piastri notwithstanding, he's had an amazing year, minus a couple of blips here and there. But that's an exception rather than the rule. But you can see the progress that Logan Sargent has made. Brand new track. Normally, if you're a rookie, you would take a lot more caution into this because you don't want to look dumb. Logan still doesn't have a seat for next year. Don't forget that he hasn't signed with Williams for 24, an extension of any kind whatsoever. He's really feeling the pressure. And I think this race showed that he is handling the pressure very well and that he's going to be a staple in the Williams organization for years to come. It was great to see him succeed finally and compete with the big boys. Alex Albon, he does what Alex Albon does. He competes with the big boys with a lower end car. You see how great Albon can drive. You can see how enthusiastic he is when it comes to new track and just racing in general. I am very, very, and everyone who's a Williams fan should be very, very proud of what they did this weekend in qualifying. And the guys at Williams should be very, very proud on what they did in qualifying. The track is starting to come in. It's gotten a little bit warmer by that time. These guys are absolutely flying. They're used to the track at this point. So let's get into your top 10 right now. Leclerc finishes on pole. Ferrari is in the zone this weekend. They do very well in track circuits. Max, I mean, he still does great. It's this year where he's winning, like he wins everything. 
But to see Ferrari really push Red Bull, you can tell they have the experience on street circuits. They've got everything absolutely dialed in this weekend. It was fantastic to see. Second place, as the race will start on Saturday night slash Sunday morning, Max is in second. But qualifying finish was Carlos Seitz. They got his car back together, uh, a mix of new and old parts. But even with that penalty, he drops all the way down to 12th. But it would have been a front row lockout for Ferrari. Very fast on rails, working together to give each other the toe during qualifying. You don't see that very often with a lot of the teams. Some teams do that, that you know need a little bit of help, that maybe struggle a little bit. They look for those toes when it comes to qualifying speed. Ferrari, not necessarily one of those to play nice with each other. It's, it's a team game when it suits them. It's an individual sport when you know, the other 99.9% of the time. But Leclerc on pole, and it wasn't by like a little bit. He took control of qualifying Max. He did well. He got second, third technically. But you could tell that the car wasn't exactly super happy with the grip. Red Bull has a very good track record of keeping tires alive, keeping them very useful for long periods of time. Ferrari, not necessarily this that case, but they were just dialed in. Ferrari's or Red Bull struggled just a little bit, but Leclerc first, Max second, George Russell third, Pierre Gasly fourth, Alex Albon fifth, Logan Sargent in sixth, Valtteri Bottas in seventh, Kevin Magnussen in eighth, Fernando Alonso in ninth, and Lewis Hamilton in tenth. Everybody, everybody gets bumped up one spot just because Carlos Sites. Uh, got that 10 place grip penalty. Like I said, he ends up in 12th. The guys that are up there are up there as they normally would. Really nice to see Valtteri Bottas and the Salva up in the top 10 again. You know he knows how to drive. They've just been struggling with the development of the car. Not necessarily the speed of the car. They have very consistent speed, but they just haven't been able to find that next level when it comes to adding the upgrades, which is essentially making them fall behind. They're upgrading the same time everybody else is. Just everybody else is getting that advantage that somehow Salba's missing. Pierre Gasly back to form in fourth, which is nice to see. He's had a little bit of a tumultuous year. Not exactly wonderful, not exactly horrible, but when it has gone wrong, it has really gone off the rails. Nice to see him in the top five when it comes to qualifying. Let's just see if he can actually convert that into points. Not necessarily a win, but at least points in the race this weekend. The qualifying times are in, the cars are repaired, the fans are happy, and that can only mean one more thing, that it is time to enjoy the inaugural first ever 2023 Vegas Grand Prix. New track, new cars, new drivers. We are talking 17 turns. We are talking 55-0 laps. A total distance per lap of 6.2 kilometers. No top speed, no fastest lap. That's the kind of information we're going to get at the end of this race. Before the race even started, there was more drama to go along with the day. At the beginning of every race day, the drivers get to hop in in classic cars and and do a crowd lap. They wave at them. They get to cheer them. It's a, a bit of a thank you to the fans for showing up for the weekend, for supporting Formula One, for dealing with any extra drama on and off the track that they have to deal with that may or may not slow down the race. But what generally does not happen is you don't have a crash or a breakdown with these classic cars, except for this Saturday. 
two cars on the grid, one holding Lewis Hamilton. I do believe the other one was carrying uh, George Russell. Both cars had a breakdown. They lost all their oil on an already slick track. Now, where they lost the oil on the track is one of the, it's one of those moments where you're just like, yeah, of course it happened right there. Couldn't have been in a more awkward spot. And that spot is exactly in the grid setup on the start finish line, which means two spots where two totally separate cars are going to start have to be cleaned again because there's additional oil. This could mean that the cars affected could have less traction, could spin out, could lose uh, grid place, all that sorts of things. An additional 20 minute delay. The uh, stewards got it all cleaned up, added more sand and debris to the track, unfortunately, but that's just what they do to absorb the oil. When you're looking at the track, when you're looking at the start, like the, the grid, right-hand side, that's going to be Leclerc. That's number one. Max, he's in number two. He's going to be on the opposite left-hand side. Of course, the dirty part of the track is going to be the left-hand side. This is where the cars had lost the oil. Giving the left-hand side drivers a little bit of a disadvantage, but hey, there's nothing a whole lot you can do about it. The drivers did their warm-up laps. Everybody's good. Leclerc did not crash this time. All of you Ferrari fans who haven't seen the race, you can breathe easy. He did not crash in the warm-up lap, which is always good. Five lights, away we go, and oh my God, did these guys not just go for broke. You can tell these drivers from the practice sessions that they've had to the warm-up laps to all the simulators, they are feeling more and more comfortable with this track as the time goes on. It's a new track for everybody, but don't forget, they are experienced professionals. Everybody's on a level playing field. Everyone from the lowest Williams and Haas driver all the way up to the seven and, you know, seven, eight, nine, you know, six time world champions. They're all going to be on level playing field. Leclerc, Max, they're leaving everybody behind. Behind them in the grid, in the middle of the pack itself, a little bit of what I call a little bit of bump and pass involving Checo Perez, uh, Fernando Alonso, Valtteri Bottas, all of them picking up a little bit of damage, but nothing super serious, nothing that would cause a yellow flag, uh, nothing that would cause a safety car or a red flag. A little bit of argy-bargy, but you know, that's it's, it's racing. Focusing back on Leclerc and Verstappen, these guys side by side. Max, not exactly the fastest start he's ever had, but it's not also the worst start he's ever had. Leclerc, He's got that straight line speed of the Ferrari, but it's nothing compared to the W or the RB19. Picture this. You're going into the first set of corners, which is a left to right. It's a big S. So you're going from left to right, then you're going right to left, and then you're going into a, a longer corner. What Max does, I think, was an amazing piece of driving. I also think he got really, really lucky in the fact that he lost a little bit of traction. The tires weren't exactly warm and he ends up pushing Leclerc off the road as well as himself. Now, I don't think he meant to do it. Some people say yes. Some people say no. It all depends on how you want to look at it. Ferrari, absolutely irate when this happens. Rightfully so. It looked like Max almost purposely pushed him off the track. At the same time, when you're on the onboard camera with Max, as well as somebody that were behind him, you could tell he doesn't quite have all the traction that he needs. And the fact that he, you know, a little bit of slipping and sliding just because his tires aren't up to up to speed, up to up to grip performance wise. When that generally happens, you will get a fairly quick warning from the stewards going, you have to give that place back or the stewards let 
the engineers know who let the drivers know, hey, you have to give that spot back. Or the engineer just tells the drivers, we're going to get penalized for that. You got to give that spot back. Let him pass so then you can pass him again. It's kind of like swapping spots. But nothing like that happened for at least seven to eight laps. Meanwhile, the race goes along as planned. A couple of laps later, Perez has to go in. He's got himself a new front wing. He picked up a little bit of damage. He opted to not take a new set of tires quite yet because Checo's tire life, like he can make these tires last a lot longer than normal people do. So he just went in for a quick wing change. Off he goes. In the meanwhile, Lando Norris's day goes from bad qualifying to an even worse race. Because the asphalt is so new and because it's not weathered in, it's not driven in, it's very, very slick. When you were watching, when I was watching F1 TV, you could just see how shiny that road is. It almost looked like it had rained, but it's just the additional oils and grease coming out of the asphalt as new asphalt does as it gets weathered in. And it looked to be just an honest mistake. Uh, and not even an honest mistake, just a racing incident. Norris was going straight and it seemed that he had a little bit of a correction in the back end of the car. As he corrected, it just made the issue worse. He ended up skidding out and he ended up hitting the wall at about 220 kilometers an hour, losing the back end of his vehicle. Like the driver's side back tire was just absolutely gone, sheared off the back of the car, a massive amount of flame because he's got a full fuel cell in there, but He's thankfully okay. They've got safety features in the cars and he slides. It had to have been 200 meters doing, you know, 200 K and then he ends up spinning. So he's facing forward and he hits the runoff area wall at the very end, you know, of the runoff area where all the marshals are. He was okay. The, the crash at the very beginning looked worse than it did at the very end of the crash, which was fantastic for him. Where he ended up stopping was actually pretty opportunistic just because the marshals are right there. The medical team is right there. So they literally walked maybe 15 feet to see if he was okay. They got him out of the car. They extinguished any flames that was there. And he was promptly sent to the local hospital just to make sure he was okay. Reports came back at the end of the race that Norris is okay. He hasn't sustained any major injuries. Of course, he's bumped. He's a little bruised and absolutely he will be sore for the next race. But thankfully, he is okay. But unfortunately, that leaves McLaren down to one car for the rest of the race. And that brings out our first virtual safety car of the race just because there was so much debris left on the track and it wasn't that far into the race while this happened. Some drivers had decided that they had chosen the wrong type of tires. A bunch of them jumped in for different sets that would work for the track a lot better, but our leaders ended up staying out. Meanwhile, by the time they're cleaning up the track, you're about lap five to six, they get going again, which realistically for the amount of debris that was on the track, the marshals did a fantastic job of cleaning it up very, very quickly and getting the race underway, which, you know, kudos to them. Uh, everybody stayed safe. Nobody picked up, you know, um, damaged tires or pop tires or anything like that, which is fantastic. In the meanwhile, about three laps later, all of a sudden Max gets a message that he's getting a five second penalty for running another driver off the track. Now this refers to the first corner of the first lap with him and Leclerc. Normally you hear the frustration in the drivers. You normally, you'll kind of suggest that, Hey, we should challenge this before we actually take the five second penalties. Max was not of this mindset this time. He just kind of laughed and said, send them my regards. It's kind of like, whatever, dude, you can give me a penalty and I'm still going to work through it. Do I think he deserved that penalty? 
a little bit of yes and a little bit of no. Yes, for the fact, yes, he did run Leclerc off the track, almost a full car length wide, which you're not supposed to do, obviously. The rule book is very clear about that. No on the fact that the stewards could have taken a look at the fact that it's 17 degrees, the tires are definitely not in the premium window where the drivers need them to be, and they could have chalked it up just to a racing incident. Leclerc didn't hit the wall, there was no crash, nothing along that line. So I think the marshals or the the stewards looked a little harshly on this, but at the same time, I think the stewards were also in a position where if we don't give them the penalty, we're going to get criticized for you know, favoring Max. And if we do give him a penalty, we're going to get yelled at for, you know, being against Max and making sure he doesn't win. So they're kind of in a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of situation. But I think they were a little harsh. I mean, it could have been a lot worse. It could have been a 10 second. It could have been a disqualification. So five seconds all in all, eh, he'll just apply it to the next pit stop that he has. And for the first half of the race, it was relatively uneventful except for those two issues with Leclerc or with Norris and with Leclerc and Max, these guys are just loving this track. Absolutely loving every bit of it. They're getting more and more used to the track. They're understanding the grip levels more and more every time they go around. And you can tell in their lap speed. I don't think anybody had the fastest lap record or time for more than five laps. And it switched back and forth probably nine to 12 times during the entire race. It was hard to keep track. And it wasn't just Max. It wasn't just Checo. It wasn't just Piastri that was getting the fastest lap. It was going to everybody as they started to understand where they needed to let off, where they could put the hammer down through the rest of the race. Remember, it's only 50 laps. It may seem like a lot, but as fast as these guys were going, that lap time is just getting faster and faster, which means the laps themselves are ticking down faster than they normally would. As we start to approach the lap life of the tires, the media, you either started on the mediums or you started on the hards generally. There was a couple of lower grid teams that started on softs, which were absolutely the wrong issue. When the first safety car or the virtual safety flight came out because of the debris, they quickly got rid of those soft tires. So the tires of choice are either going to be the mediums or it's going to be the hards. The lap time or the lap life of the mediums were about 14 to 21 laps, which is generally about right, especially when it comes to cooler temperature tracks. This shouldn't be an issue for Leclerc, Perez, and Verstappen because these are the top three guys that can save tire life better than anybody else on the entire grid. Except Max this time was having some kind of issue with traction and with downforce. He ends up chewing through his tires and having to swap them out for hards 16 laps into the race. Now, this is not this is not ideal for him. By the time he gets his tires on, he serves his five-second penalty. So his pit stop alone is 7.7 seconds, which is not amazing, but his penalty is served. In a proper pit stop on the Vegas Strip race, it is 21 seconds. Now, all of a sudden, you've got add another seven seconds on top of that a 28 second stop for max this is not ideal for anybody i don't care who you are i don't care what track you're on if you're in the pit lane and not physically racing for 28 seconds your day is essentially done but because max had to come in so early because his tire degradation was so high this actually puts him in a pretty good spot for the rest of the race if he can manage to get his tires for a longer stint on the hards and maybe there's another safety car, virtual safety car, maybe something happens where he can pit to get new tires, 
this will give him an advantage. But as of right now, he's going to have to extend his hard tires another nine laps longer than he wants to. Meanwhile, Leclerc just takes off. He has officially now has the lead of the entire race and he's looking pretty comfortable, but you never want to discount Max and you never want to take Checo out of the equation either. Checo himself was having an amazing race. Speaking of him, he starts off not exactly in the best position. He didn't have an amazing qualifying. He was out in Q2, but to see him race, he looked like the Checo of the first half of the season. He was passing where he needed to. He was taking advantage of other people's mistakes and maybe other people's over cautiousness. If, if that's a word on this track, because it's still so new and with a 21 second pit stop window, it's pretty easy to gain several positions on the grid when one or two people go for new tires and Max and Checo are not the one, not only they are not the only ones who are having a fantastic time on this track. There has been passing and repassing and side to side racing since the first lights until the very last set. And when the fireworks go off or whoever wins, they, this track is amazing. There's room to pass. There's room for DRS, but there's no DRS trains. It's set up a way in a way where, yeah, it may look like a pig. It may not look like the most technical track, but when you see the guys race it, they know where to take their opportunities. They know where to pass. They know where to break. They know where to push each other back and forth. It was so hard to keep track of how many passes there were, but it was amazing and it was awe-inspiring to watch all at the same time. So at this point, we're halfway through the race. We're at lap 26. Max is passing people pretty much at will at this point. He knows where he can and cannot pass to do it successfully. The RB19 has still that straight line speed that no one else can compete with, but he's coming up on some rivals where he's got some history trying to pass them and in past races. One of those is George Russell. These guys have had a couple of interactions throughout the years. It's, it's not that they hate each other. They just don't necessarily like racing against each other. They do have a similar style, a more aggressive style of racing compared to everybody else. They like to stick their elbows out and assert their dominance on the track at some point, which usually ends up they come in for a collision more often than not. And this is exactly what happened this time as well. Now, remember that move that Max did on Leclerc on lap one? on those that that S curve. Well, Max is doing the exact same thing to George Russell. But in this time, they don't necessarily go wide. But there is more of a collision this time. There is a collision this time 100%. Close your eyes. This is your situation. George Russell is on the right-hand side and he's going to take he always usually takes a larger loop into S curves. He likes to keep his momentum. He doesn't like to hit the brakes and really lean on them as much as Max. Max is on the left-hand side, so he's going to take the inside um, inside line to this corner. He breaks so late, but he does this move so fast. I don't think George Russell actually saw Max do it until it was too late. Max passes him on the inside left-hand corner, and George Russell essentially just turns into him. Absolutely demolishing well, not absolutely demolishing, but causing some pretty good damage to the front of the Mercedes and a little bit of damage to the Red Bull car as well. Max ends up passing Russell. Russell's all pissy like he normally is because he wasn't, I don't think he was paying attention. I also don't think he was expecting this move to happen from Max. Uh, the incident goes straight up to the stewards and about two laps later, 
George Russell is handed a five-second penalty for causing a collision. Again, I agree, but don't fully agree with this decision, and here's why. Was it more of a racing incident? I think so. Was it done on purpose from Russell? I don't think he did. I just think that Max surprised him. Nobody got, oh, Max, I think Russell got a puncture on that one. He ended up with the brunt of the damage from this incident anyways. But I think the stewards were kind of making up for the fact that they gave Verstappen a five-second penalty lapse before for something that may, you know, a little bit of a soft call. So I think they were kind of covering their ass on this one going, hey, you see, we're not, you know, we're not uh, ruling against the champion. We like everybody equally. So they end up giving Russell a five-second penalty, which he does not serve until the end of the race. Now you have options. You can stop for five seconds or you can just continue on and they add five seconds to your time. George Russell at this point, we're 26 laps in. He does not make another stop until the end of the race when it's over. So then they, then they apply the five second penalty to George Russell then. So once Verstappen has cleared Russell, the penalties are dished out. Max again, he's on the hunt. Now he's in the top five yet again. Meanwhile, Checo is having an amazing race. He's gone from 11th in 33 laps. Now he has in, he's in first place. He ends up passing Leclerc. Uh, just they're going back and forth. It's an amazing sight to see. Uh, it's an amazing race value for what you're going to see. You can see the quality of the racing that these guys do. You can see the experience. They know when to push it. They know when to hold back. And they know how to push each other to the absolute limit. Now, while Checo and Leclerc were fighting for the first position, Max took the opportunity from the safety, virtual safety car from his little uh, interaction with George Russell to get himself another set of hard tires. Now, instead of being a deficit like he was before, all of a sudden he's done two pit stops and now he's got a brand new set to take to the very end. He now has about six lap younger tires than uh, Leclerc. This is definitely going to come into play by the time the end of the race is. It's there. Max catches up to everybody. He's got his pit stop in. He's got his fresh tires. Because Checo and Leclerc were battling for so long, it gave Max the opportunity to catch up. Now, you've got the three of them, the top three drivers, in my opinion, on the grid fighting for 17 laps. The last 17 was just back and forth, back and forth. The passes were clean. There was nothing sketchy. It was wheel-to-wheel racing. Max comes up, passes Checo. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. He doesn't make a big deal about it. Neither does the team. The team just lets them race on. When Max passes Charles, it was on the straight with DRS, just going literally as fast as you possibly can. I don't care how you tune a Ferrari. I don't care how much tire life they have left. A Ferrari will not ever in this day and age, be able to compete with the straight line speed with DRS as the RB19 or the RB20 for next year and so on and so forth. They just cannot keep up. Max is in front. He now is putting a little bit of a distance between him, himself and Checo and Leclerc because Leclerc and Perez are fighting, you know, essentially fighting each other. Checo is playing the team game very, very well. And he knows how to do it without being told. His nickname is the Mexican Minister of Defense for a reason. He can defend against anybody in Formula One. I would put him in the top 10 essentially defensive drivers from 
the time I've watched Formula One since I started up until now. He is just amazing at it. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He is fantastic. Leclerc, Perez, back and forth, back and forth. Perez has got the advantage on the straight stretches. Leclerc has the advantages on the corners. Lap 44 comes around. Uh, Leclerc is in front of Perez. He's been able to defend him quite well. He's been able to hold Perez off long enough to hit the corners where he has that little bit of an advantage. Unfortunately for Leclerc, it was just a matter of time and history shows that it's something is going to happen. He comes into the S corner. It's the same corner that Russell and Max had an issue. Essentially what he's done is he overcooks the corner. He goes in too fast. He breaks too late. He ends up skidding a little bit. So he ends up going wide. Checo comes in with an inside pass through that S curve. Now it's a Red Bull 1-2 with six laps left to go. But Leclerc recovers fast enough and he's got enough speed and he can make up time in those corners, like I said, where he's catching up to Checo. To Checo. Half a second here. A third, like a sixteenth of a, of a second like this. This time difference between those two drivers is just astronomical. At this point, Max has got himself a 4.5 second lead. Max is saying, yeah, we can do this as a team. We can get him. Let's work together. Team orders that Max totally agrees with. They're telling Max to slow down so he can punch a hole in the air for Checo to keep up, essentially trying to give him a slipstream. The ideal world to give Checo DRS on Max because we know Checo, he doesn't have the car to pass Max, but it's going to help him stay ahead of Leclerc by this point in the race we're we're taking down the laps there is almost no time left at this point where the team orders come in i do think they called for team orders a little late but they wanted to guarantee the win for max which makes sense in their you know the team points and all that kind of jazz it's the last lap they're calling for max to slow down let checo catch up he goes from four point seconds like 4.5 seconds to 2.3 like he's slowing down substantially but Checo is just, he's having the hardest time trying to catch up. And the way that Checo was defending to the way that Leclerc was driving, it was just a matter of time until something big happened. And oh my God, did it actually happen? The last corner inside pass Leclerc did to Perez what Max did to Russell again. Inside corner, really late breaking. This time, no contact between the two drivers. They did it very, very well, but it happened in a split second. Leclerc saw his opportunity. He takes that inside line. He passes Checo. He takes that S-curve, and Checo, he tries his damnedest to catch up, but he, he just can't do it. He loses another second place podium finish literally on the last corner of the last possible lap. Max cruises in with like a 1.5, 1.6 second victory. Leclerc right behind him, Perez right behind him. It was by far the best finish I have seen this year. It's the best finish I have seen compared to all of last year. It's probably going to be one of the best races and one of the best finishes you are going to see for the next couple of years. They did this track right. The drivers excelled at the brand new track, never been used before, never been raced before. A couple of practice sessions and that's it. And they weren't even full practice sessions. And this is the type of performance that they end up giving the fans. It was absolutely amazing. In the background, 
two more DNFs, unfortunately. No, no collisions, no drama, no red flags. Yuki Tsunoda reporting a gearbox problem. He ends up retiring lap 48 and a lap before Nico Hulkenberg also ends up not finishing lap 47. What they end up doing, and it was a really smart move from these drivers, is they ended up going off the track in the kind of the runaway zone where Norris had crashed earlier. But what they did, they were able to slow down and essentially drive off the track to where the marshals were. So it went from, I don't even think there was a caution flag long enough for the, the icon to turn yellow on the screen. The drivers both did it really good awareness not to mess up the race, not to slow anybody down. So kudos to Yuki and Nico, unfortunately for them. You know, another DNF for both of the guys. Both of them could really use the points for their teams in the Constructors' Championships. But hey, that's racing. With Max taking another victory and the very first victory in 40-some-odd years in Las Vegas, here are your top 10s. Max first, Leclerc second, Perez third, Esteban Ocon. A quiet yet very solid race ends up in fourth. Same with Lance Stroll. Nothing super flashy, no drama, no antics. Ends up in a solid fifth. Carlos Seitz in sixth. Fantastic recovery from his 10th place. Grid penalty ends up going from 12th to 6th. Very much needed points for Ferrari. Hamilton, Russell, 7th, 8th, respectively. Really good point haul for Mercedes. They also need that in the Constructors' Championships. Fernando Alonso in 9th and Oscar Piastri in 10th. Little side note, Oscar Piastri, he was in 4th at one point. The rules in Formula 1 state that you have to use more than one compound. There was about 10 laps left. Oscar Piastri was still on his first set of hards from the beginning of the race. His tire management was amazing. If it wasn't for that rule that he had to do a pit stop to change tires, he easily would have been in the top five and scored massive, massive points for his team. But as it is, rules are rules, but he still ends up scoring a very much needed point for McLaren, as well as he also gets the fastest lap. So congratulations to Oscar Piastri. Drivers Championship numbers, Max Verstappen. Obviously, he's won the Drivers Championships. Points, you are looking at 549 points. Checo Perez is in second with 273 points. Lewis Hamilton in third with 232 points. Carlos Seitz and Fernando Alonso, respectively, fourth and fifth, both tied with 200 points. Uh, Lando Norris in sixth with 195 points. Leclerc is in seventh with 188 points. George Russell is in eighth with 160 points. Oscar Piastri is ninth with 89 points. And Lance Stroll is in tenth with 73 points. A couple of things to note with the Drivers' Championship. Uh, Lando Norris, five points difference away from eclipsing both Sites and Alonso. The way that McLaren is driving and just the luck and the consistency that McLaren is having this race notwithstanding, I do expect Lando Norris to leapfrog from sixth to fourth in the last race of the season. He's just got more momentum going for him than Alonso and Sites combined. It would be fantastic to see him finish that high. I really do think that he will be able to do this. On another note, because of where Checo finished in third today, he is now officially out of reach of Lewis Hamilton. And in the entire history of the Red Bull team, this is the first time that it is an entire clean sweep for this team. They've won the drivers, they've won the constructors, and they've secured first and second in the driver's championship. That is a massive, massive milestone for any team. I don't care if you hate Red Bull. I don't care if you love Red Bull. If you really don't care, you just love the sport. 
it is something to be accomplished and it is something to be admired for the next couple of years. They will, in my opinion, hold on to this record for a few years. Constructors Championship points, Red Bull, 822 points. Mercedes is in second with 392. Ferrari's in third with 388. McLaren is in fourth with 284. Aston Martin is now in fifth still with 273 points. Alpine is in sixth with 120. Williams in seventh with 28. Alfa Ritari is in eighth with 21. Alfa Romeo is in ninth with 16. And Haas is still in the basement with in 10th spot with 12 points. Aston Martin does have a chance to pass McLaren just for the fact that they, McLaren needed the points from Lando Norris, which might put McLaren in a little bit of a desperation mode when it comes to the last race of the year, which is coming up in a couple days, actually. Um, will Aston Martin actually pass them? They're 11 points behind. Uh, they got to pull something big out. Lance Stroll is now pulling a few more points in Fernando Alonso. Alonso's having trouble getting into the top five. Now, whether it's the makeup of the car, if it's just old parts, if it's just Alonso's getting tired, whatever the case may be, Aston Martin needs to pick it up for one more race. McLaren is coming hard. If they place, uh, I think if they just need to clear one driver in the top five compared to Aston Martin, McLaren will seal the fourth place, which will be astronomical for where McLaren started at the beginning of the year. I, they're definitely throwing their hats in for team of the year. I mean, I know Red Bulls won everything, but to see where McLaren started at, to see where they're going to finish at, it, it's a, a massive case of developing your car properly at the right time, being patient and developing a fantastic driver culture respectively Williams and Alfretari, they're only seven points difference. Now, Ricardo did not exactly have the best race. Neither did Yuki Tsunoda. Um, Williams seems to be on a trend. They did start qualifying in the top 10. They finished out of the qualifying by the time the race was done, but it is showing remarkable promise for Williams for the last race of the year. All they need is, you know, top five or top 10 one more time, and they will secure that seven spot, which means millions of dollars more in fund uh, funding for the team, which I think is absolutely amazing. Very well-deserved story of the race time. Uh, normally I would do a driver. Normally I would do a team accomplishments, all those sorts of things. Yeah. You can mention that max won another race, blah, 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 but we're going to switch gears and I'm giving the story of the race to the developers, the contractors, the overall idea of the Vegas Grand Prix. I was ridiculously skeptical when they first announced it, as I'm sure many of you were. It's looked like another cash grab for Vegas pricing out their fans. And we have seen when the ticket prices first came out to where they ended up for the race with. And then you've got things like cars breaking down and extra oil being spilt on the track. It almost looked like it was going to be a gong show weekend with, you know, more things like the manhole covers coming up, things of that nature, fans getting kicked out not being able to see full practice. All of that aside, when you came to the actual event itself, it is rightfully crowned the crown jewel event of the Formula One season. The track, I made fun of it from the first time I saw it. It didn't look that complicated. There's not a whole lot of elevation. I can honestly say it is one of the best tracks in the Formula One calendar as of right now, and it's only the first year. The longer you have this track in the calendar, the more they use the asphalt, they get it aged in, they get it to where they need it to be. This 
track. This event is going to be the best on the calendar for many a year. The race aspect of it doesn't need to be fixed at all, in my opinion. Maybe some people will say you need a couple tweaks here and there with the turning areas, that kind of thing. That is a more personal preference for anybody else. The part where they can improve, in my opinion, is the coverage of the race. There are some pretty cringy moments because Vegas always wants to go above and beyond, and it doesn't always work out the best. The first thing that pops to mind is the driver introductions. Was it as cringy as Miami where they were, you know, rapping and giving profiles? Kind of, sort of. Bruce Buffer did his best. It looked like they didn't rehearse the driver introductions a whole lot. Maybe that needs to be tweaked a little bit. Um, no cool down area. As you would normally see in a race, the guys go in a room, they have some water, they talk about the race. In this case, they get shuffled into a luxury car and they still talk about the race. It's still like the Max Verstappen podcast. I enjoyed that part. It's still entertaining. But when they did the top three driver interviews, it seemed really amateur. They had some people walking in front of the cameras. The uh, sound wasn't exactly great. A massive amount of echoing. And then the, the, the big show to end everything at the Bellagio with the fountain. It, it totally lost the, the, the grandeur of it. There was no music to go along with it. It was just dead silence as it was a panned out view. The parts that I really did enjoy when they went over the top was uh, the trophy presentation. First of all, love the trophy. It's totally Vegas. It's big. It's colorful. It's very, very unique. You know where it comes from. I think they did a fantastic job with the trophy. Another part I absolutely loved when they introduced the drivers for the top three, instead of just showing their picture and a couple of scenes from the race, it was like a massive slot machine, which was fantastic. From right to left, it was their number, then a picture of the driver, and then the, the logo of who they drove for. I found that fantastic. I found that very, very entertaining. Overall viewing experience for myself, I would give this, I mean, the race definitely helped. I would give this a solid eight and a half out of 10. You can't give a perfect score. There's always room to improve. Um, I did hear there was some issues trying to get from the actual track back to the people's hotels just because it was a little bit of a, a roundabout, not direct way to get back to where people were staying. But hey, they learned their lesson. They're probably going to, there's no probably about it. They're going to alter some things for next season. Hopefully the tickets will not be as high. They've kind of, they found the ceiling, I would hope, of what they can successfully charge and make it a fun weekend. Maybe they may overcorrect and make it a little bit cheaper for next season just so they can bring more people in to enjoy it. But overall, eight and a half out of 10 experience. I love this race. I cannot wait to see it again next season. And with that, folks, that is the breakdown of the 2023 Las Vegas Grand Prix. I think it was an overall success. I hope everybody enjoyed it. And with that, we only have one more race to go in the 2023 season. And that race is the November 24th to 26th weekend. It is the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. It is the last race of the year. It is also another night race. We've got two night races back to back, which means for us in North America, it's another very, very, very early morning if you want to watch everything. Regular weekend, so full practice one and two is on Friday mornings, respectively. 2.30 in the morning for practice one, 6 o'clock in the morning for practice two. Saturday morning at 3.30 is practice, full practice three. Uh, the pre-qualifying show is 6 a.m. on Saturday. 
qualifying runs at seven o'clock Saturday morning. And then you get your post quality show. If you want to watch that at nine o'clock Sunday morning, pre-race show is 5. AM. The race is 6. AM. The post race show is 8. AM. I never miss this race. I know it's another early one. I will catch it. I don't care how sleep deprived I get because this track has the history of on and off track drama, not just from 2021, but it was an amazing race in 22. And I expect the exact same thing in the 2023 season finale. So until then, I will talk to you guys next week.